0: Oh, okay, I see. It used to be on the bottom, didn't it? Now it's on the right side. Anyway, I think. Well, I don't see the. Oh, it only shows you one ahead. Okay. Hebrews, book of Hebrews. This morning. Um if it helps that yeah, I'll make do. If I read something wrong, you know what's up. Uh we'll stall for a second. We got some people coming in. I'm going to ask you certain questions. Well, let me let me back up for one second before that even. Um my goal with our study of the book of Hebrews is to uh, get you, help us all to be able to just kind of think through the book of Hebrews, understand what the message of Hebrews is, what, what, what it is. Uh, now, different folks are going to grab different things of that, obviously, but um, there's are certain big things that everybody ought to be able to, to get, and that's the goal is, is, you know, hopefully you'll have that. And uh, even if you, if you don't get all the details, at least if you have the big things, you can, again, you can just sit there and think about the book of Hebrews um, and what it's presenting, what it's teaching. And, and I used Genesis before as an example of that with key thoughts. It's very easy in reality. I mean, uh, you think about that. There's four key events, really, in the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis. There's a lot of things, obviously, but there's four key events And everything kind of fits into or around one of those uh, events. And then really chapters 12 through 50 in the book of Genesis, there's four key characters, four key men that the content of Genesis is about. And again, there's a lot of details, a lot of things involved. But those everything in those chapters somehow or another really revolves around those four men. And uh, so, I mean, that's that's simple. That's 50 chapters. So Hebrews is, is similar in fact, uh, and this is what I was getting ready to say, there's three key words. I'm going to ask you this every week, okay? So uh, it, should, it should hopefully become uh, second nature. But Hebrews, there's uh, 13 chapters in Hebrews, of course, and um, the, uh, the message of Hebrews is all about the Lord Jesus, okay? It's all about... Um, Uh, it's all about the Lord Jesus and the fact that He's better. He's superior to, uh, to everything and anything. And keeping in mind that Hebrews, uh, the, as a book, is written to primarily Hebrew people, okay? Uh, that helps, again, put things in perspective as far as the message of it and, and the content of it, what it's about. So it's, it's kind of written toward that perspective, much of the New Testament is the opposite, if you, if you think about that. The, the epistles of Paul, for instance, he, he wrote more books. They're not always the longest ones, but wrote more books uh, than any other writer, but most of Paul's epistles are directed toward Gentiles in reality. Um, and so. But that doesn't mean they're not applicable to Jewish people who are saved, because obviously the same truth is is real for a Gentile who's saved as a Jew who's saved, all right? We're all in Christ, but Hebrews is unique in a number of ways, and one of those being that it is primarily directed to and and uh, in the whole thinking of of the writer of Hebrews and the arguments and so on. It 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 has a Jewish uh, foundation to it, okay, and so that's that's important to keep in mind. But it's demonstrating that Christ is superior, and there's three really key big sections to the book of Hebrews, and there's three key words that uh, that I've given you and uh, I think are very obvious when you look at those portions of Hebrews, okay? Um, so before I put those up here, because I'm I'm not sure if the way that I put these in to come up, they're going to be separated from their... Uh, the references as far as the chapter. So before I put those up, what are those three key words that help us just think through the book of Hebrews, all right? And they all start with P, of course. So the person of Christ, all right? And, and that's foundational to everything. If he's not who the bible teaches that he is then it really doesn't matter everything else all right so that's foundational and 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 there's a logical flow to this as well if you think about it all right but the person of christ that's foundational to it all what's the next p the next section of hebrews focuses on what christ's superior priesthood all right or you could think of that as his work what he did but but in hebrews there's a special emphasis not just on the fact that he's the Savior and that he, you know, he died to provide a way that God could be satisfied with sin and and or for sin and, and all of that, not satisfied with sin, but you know what I mean, hopefully, but, um, uh, but it presents Christ's work in his saving work from a different angle and that of being the believer's priest as well as sacrifice. It's, that's interesting. One of the areas, we'll talk about that when we get into more chapters, but Uh, Christ differs from the Old Testament priest in that he not only is the priest, he was the sacrifice as well. And and, again, uh, but only he could do that. All right. So his person, his priesthood, and then what's the third P is his superior principle. And, and, And again, what we're talking about in that, the emphasis of those last several chapters is that faith in Christ, who he is, and what he's done, that is the superior principle, all right? Uh, faith in him. So, again, I don't remember how this was set up. All right, person, anybody remember the the chapters that that covers in the book of Hebrews or that are concerned with that, all right? Obviously, it begins in chapter 1 because it's the first uh, part, but uh, it's chapters 1 through 4. Basically, as we get into more specifics, you'll see that in every one of these uh in this outline, every one of them, there's a kind of a, a portion that's a, what I call a transition. It, it, it sums up what has just been, but then it also introduces what's to come. And the last several verses of chapter 4 do that as well. They make a transition. So uh, chapters 1 through 4 basically focus on the person of Christ. Chapters what? Obviously 5, but 5 through 10 focus on the priesthood of Christ which is probably the biggest section, of course, amount you know of written words in the book of Hebrews, but the, per, the priesthood of Christ and then his principle, and I have that with that for some reason. I don't know if that's my mistake on how it's put in because I noticed the Roman numerals aren't there either. I don't know what happened. But anyway, uh, I'm still trying to get used to PowerPoint again and all this. I did, with the help of Andy and, and a little bit from Tim too, yesterday I was able to uh, figure out how to get it line by line animated here anyway so that helps uh but anyway so maybe uh, there's some other things i got to figure out there but um but the principle of Christ is faith in Christ that's the last several chapters there're 10 and you'll notice 10 and 10 because really about halfway through chapter 10 is where it changes okay so that's why it's the same number uh in that and you uh again remember it's it's the principle is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ all right so um, so, uh, and again, I, I guess, okay, here's the Roman numerals. I didn't re- I didn't remember, I had them on different slides. Anyway, so uh, the outline, a simplistic outline, we've already kind of seen it, but in every one of those Ps, or in every one of those three main sections, obviously there's a breakdown in it. And in the first one, the one that we've been, we started and we're in right now, the person of Christ, these first four chapters, There's really three key words there as well that you can, again, kind of trying to think of the framework there. The first is what we started looking at last week in chapter 1, the deity of Christ. And and whenever whenever the Bible presents doctrine concerning Jesus, who he is, it always emphasizes and starts with his deity because, again, he's God. He's God the Son. And... Uh, it's it's extremely important that we understand he's God. He always has been God. There's never been a moment that Jesus hasn't been God. He is God, all right? Now, he is also man, but the difference is he's not always been man. He became man. And there's a, a vast difference in the two, all right? So man humanity is something that he took on all right at a point in time he took that on for specific reasons so that he could do certain things on behalf of God and man and of course he's the god man he's the Mediator, the one that goes between God and man. He's, you know, all of this again will be brought is brought out in the book of Hebrews. But his deity first of all, then his humanity. That's stressed here in the book of Hebrews as well. But it's interesting, as you'll see. I think, uh, although I mean, amount of space, chapter two, for the most part, the entire chapter talks about his humanity. But there's not as much, if you want to say, just repetitive emphasis on it because it's obvious that Jesus was a man, all right? I mean, and especially to the people in the New Testament context who received the New Testament directly, I mean, they understood he was a man. The argument, for the most part, in that first century, if I can say it that way, was, okay, he's a man, obviously, he lived here, he he did things, and and he died, and and but is he God? That that was really the the crux of the argument. So Hebrews puts more detail, if you want to say, as far as like quotation from the Old Testament and so on, on the deity of Christ. His humanity is kind of an obvious thing, Uh, again, to the people that were there, all right? And then there's one other word, I don't know if you remember it from that, but faithfulness. And that's important as well, because what's stressed in that in that word, with, uh, the, the, as far as the argument of the book of Hebrews, is that Christ, and only Christ, was completely faithful to his mission. Every other human being, and you'll see that in chapter 3, Moses is brought up as a comparison. Remember, throughout Hebrews, Christ is compared. There are other, you know, there are other characters, if I can say it that way, that are brought up in comparison with Christ, and he's always shown to be superior to them which makes sense, again, because of who he is. But uh, first of all, the prophets, remember? He, he's superior to the prophets. The prophets could only present bits and pieces about you know, God's revelation because they didn't know it all and they were only given bits and pieces. Only Jesus could fully reveal God, all right? And then the angels, we've seen those two comparisons so far in chapter one with what we've seen. Christ is superior to the angels. The angels were important uh, to the Jews as well. The angels had a lot of, if you want to say, involvement in, uh, in Israel's history and in Israel's uh, existence and so on. I mean, um, uh, especially as you get farther into the Old Testament, you see that angels were used often by God to do things on behalf of Israel and to, to bring things and to communicate and, and so on. So these are important, all right? But faithfulness You'll see in chapter 3 that, that Moses is brought up as a comparison. If there's one man that the Jews would look to as somebody who is so important in their, in their system, obviously it would be Moses. But Moses wasn't, he, he, he didn't, if you think about it, he, didn't comp, he was faithful, all right? I, I think everybody would have to agree, Moses was a faithful man. But yet he was not 100% faithful. He's, he still failed. He never made it into the promised land. His mission was to get Israel out of Egypt and take them into the promised land. He did part of that, you know, and and obviously I say he did. I mean, he had to rely on God and and all of that, but he didn't completely fulfill the mission that God gave him, but Christ did, only Christ did, all right? And and that's the idea of that, the faithfulness, right? So we'll just, uh, for this morning's purpose, let's get through here, you remember in chapter 1, all right, because I want to I get back to where we were and then, and then press on here, but in chapter 1, this, this concept of the superior person of Christ because of his deity is what's emphasized here. We already read together chapter 1, so let's not uh, take the time right now this morning to reread all that. Let me have a quick word of prayer, and then we'll jump right back into where we were here, I think. I think we can pick that out. All right, so let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, for your word. Help us this morning. Just uh, open our eyes that we can see and understand uh, what you have for us in your word this morning, these just major important principles about the Lord Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we we saw His his superior person because of his deity. We've seen, gotten into that here in chapter one, and there's... In that, there's three key words. This isn't, it just happens this way, I guess, but there's three key words in chapter one. All right. Uh, and let me see if this is how this, okay, yeah, his revelation. And these, and again, these are all alliterated. Sometimes that seems ridiculous, I understand, but sometimes I think it is helpful to kind of remember things as well. All right, but his superior revelation. First several verses you see, again, he's compared to the prophets. And the fact, yep, God used the prophets to reveal things, but in very minute ways in reality. Christ has fully revealed God. Remember, there's a sevenfold description of uh, God's Son uh, here, which I'm not going to get back into all of these right now, but these are all very important, and only Christ can do these. None of the prophets could do any one of these in reality. Only Christ could. All right, And then we began to see his superior relationship all right? in, in the next several verses here. And the fact is that he's referred to over and over again in this chapter now as the son, the son of God. He has a special relationship, obviously with God and with man, of course, but the emphasis here on his deity. And so his relationship, and there's two key words under that that... Um, we uh, talked about the first one is uh, his name I'm not sure if that's going to come up next when I click this or not all right his name there's four names, if you want to say, and not that these are the focus, all these individual names, but they all emphasize the, uh, the fact of who this is. First of all, is the son. You see that, that name used a number of times, specifically in verse 5. Notice how it's, it's presented here. You'll notice the first four verses are all one sentence, all right? then verse 5 starts a new sentence, for unto which of the angels, and again, you see the idea angels are brought up for way of comparison to Christ here, which, unto which of the angels said he, and of course that's God at any time, thou art my son. That's never been said of an angel, all right? And there's no way any angel can be the son of God, period. Angels are angels. God the son is unique. He is God, and of course, he now has be, he's become, and he is now man, and he forever will be now the God-man. But, <coughs> excuse me, God's never said that of any of the angels. And again, you'll notice now in the rest of chapter one, there's it's almost like one reference after another of quotations, referring back to the Old Testament here. And uh, I tried to make a list, and it's kind of it's kind of hard to do it because in some ways they're not always direct quotes, but you'll see that they're, they're clearly references uh, to these things. And, and most of the passages that are quoted here are from the Psalms and, and the Psalms that we've looked at over the last year or so in, in our looking at uh, studying some of the Psalms. Um, In fact, you'll see Psalm 2 is referred to kind of almost repeatedly in a way because referring to Him as the Son, that's where Christ is first introduced as the Son of God in Psalm 2. And then you'll see uh, Psalm 45 is referred to a number of times here. That's where uh, it talks about that um, the Lord said unto my Lord, thou, uh, now I can't even quote it right, but It's it's that reference there, and then Psalm 110, which is the psalm that specifies that that God the Son is set at the right hand of God the Father, and later on in that passage is where it refers to Him as being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. All right, You'll see those three psalms are are very heavily used in chapter 1 of Hebrews, but then also Psalm 102, Psalm 104 referenced here uh, probably Psalm 34. There's, I mean, there's, there's a number of Psalms that have, if you want to say bits and pieces, as well as other passages that are that Davidic covenant. Remember the covenant that God made with David, that his seed would be a eternal ruler, right? And, and that's in several places in the old Testament. Uh, but that's, that's referenced here, uh, a couple times as well. So, um, in Psalm 89, uh, I think like verses 25 through 27 are referenced here. Psalm 102, we'll point that one out if I remember to as we go toward the end of the chapter. A number of verses from Psalm 102 are referenced here. But His name, all right, four names that are mentioned. His, uh, He's the Son. He's the first begotten. You see that in Verse 6, he's referred to as God in verse 8, which again goes back to Psalm 45. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Because there it says, the Lord said unto my Lord, the Lord said unto my Lord, uh, or anyway i i'm I'm having trouble remembering and, and quoting here this morning so i apologize but in psalm 45 you see he's referred to as that and then you see he's referred to as lord also in verse 10 which again this is referring i think to psalm 102 here thou lord in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the works of thy hands now stop for a second and think besides going back and looking who it's referencing the messiah there but think of this, who has chapter one already taught us is the is the if you can word it this way the 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 creator in the sense of the one who physically carried out the creation it's God the Son, all right God the Father, you know it, it's almost looked at in the Bible as far as the uh the jobs, if I can say it that way, the roles of the Godhead is that God the Father is like the source of everything in that, you know, I mean, His plan, that's how things are referenced. He's the one that's, you know, behind that. Now, because He's God the Father, He has a position there, right? God the Son has a position of being under God the Father, but He's he's no less God, all right? But He is he he's the one that carries out the plan of god the holy spirit is the one that provides the enabling and so on to do those things i mean uh and and they all have different roles in different things all right but you see that kind of consistent throughout the scriptures in in that so uh, even with uh creation you see that as well um Superior relationship, right, his name, and then also his nature. In verses 5 through 7, again, quickly here you see, uh, he says, For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son, which is referencing the Davidic covenant there. But his nature, he's he's not an angel. He's not an angelic being. He's God. God the Son. He's different. All right. Um, And so you see that again through those verses emphasized there. And I'm trying to hurry here Um, in. And then the the last section, uh, as in his nature, he's deserving of worship. All right. And the angels worship. Think about this for a second. The angels worship God, the son, which is a good, excuse me, argument and demonstration that he is God. God doesn't permit I mean, mean, God has angelic beings in heaven around His throne that do nothing but worship Him, declare His holiness nonstop. God doesn't let anything other than God be worshipped. But yet, God speaks of and presents the fact that angels worship God the Son. Why? Because He's God. But he all, uh, not only is he deserving of worship, but he's deserving of service. And part of the emphasis in chapter 1 is that angels, their whole capacity is what? They're servants. They're servants of God. The, the word ministers is used of them here as well as servants. And, and, the, and they both mean the same thing, really. But the idea is their whole, their whole job is to just do the bidding of God. They serve and worship God. That's what angels... Are about now in the scope of that, as you'll see at the end of chapter one, God uses angels also in his plan to help and to serve man. okay? and we'll we'll get to that all right because as we're getting to the last part here, we see also the third part of chapter one, the argument for his deity is his superior reign. And in chapter, in verses eight through 14, you'll see the emphasis is on the fact that Christ as God's son, he, He has an eternal realm and reign, a throne, all right? But under the Son, he saith, thy throne, O God, all right? So who? God the Father's talking to God the Son and saying, thy throne, all right? So this isn't necessarily like God the Father's throne in heaven, but this is a throne that God the Son deserves and has. And maybe, (coughs) excuse me, it could be argued that in a, in a specific way, the messianic throne during the millennium is, is uh, His throne, but uh, the whole point is, in because of His person, He has a right to a throne, and He has a throne, and he, uh, he is a ruler. You know, sometimes at Christmas, we sing that song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come, then it talks about His reign. I mean, is that true? You know, What does that have to do with Christmas? You know, I mean... Uh, when you look around, it doesn't seem like he's ruling on this earth, does it? Now, he is the ruler, but again, this is still a period of time where he's allowing men to do, to make their choices, all right? But there is coming a time when that's going to change, and he's going to say, okay, enough's enough, and then he's going to sit on a throne in Jerusalem, and people will do what he says. I mean, as as... Numerous places in the Bible describe it that his rule and his reign there is going to be one of righteousness, one of peace, yes, but it also says that he's going to rule with a rod of iron. In other words, he will enforce his rule. And uh, that hasn't happened yet, all right? Uh, But that doesn't take away from the fact that he is the rightful ruler. He just hasn't come and executed that right on this earth yet. He will one day. All right, um, so uh, his superior reign. Again, you see different references. Verse 8, uh, the throne, all right, thy throne, O God. And that's God the Father talking to God the Son, again, in that psalm, in Psalm 45 there. All right, and then uh, you see it refers to in verse 8 also a scepter of righteousness in, in, in the Bible. And really in history, a scepter is something that is a... a, a significant sign of rulership, all right? I mean, you can see examples in the Old Testament of kings who had scepters. You remember in the book of Esther, for instance, uh, that Ahasuerus, uh, you know, he had, to, he had to hold out the scepter or somebody, you know, there was no way anybody was coming, All right. So, I mean, there's different, there's different kind of angles you could look at that scepter and, and talk about, and we're not going to get into all that right now. But the point is that the, the scriptures here point out that Jesus has a scepter, and it's called a scepter of righteousness here, and there's perhaps a lot of things we could say about that. But scepter of righteousness, and then in verse 9 it talks about his anointed Office. He's been anointed, all right, and that's what Christ. The word Christ means. The word Messiah. Messiah is kind of like the, the Hebrew idea. Christ is the is the the Greek idea, but they both have the same idea meaning. The anointed one, and he is the anointed of God. Now, believers as individuals, where we have anointing, and there's, but but he is the anointed one, and I don't know what I'm doing. To uh, I don't think I'm pushing anything, but anyway, you see also verse 9 speaks of an exalted position that he has. He's anointed with the oil of gladness above thy fellows, <coughs> and again, well, there's, there's a lot of details, obviously, that we're not going to get into in, in these things, or we'd never get done with the book of Hebrews, all right? But my, my focus, again, I'm trying to emphasize the, the message of Hebrews, what it's about. And I'm going to give you an example of of something here in just a minute. Uh, But an exalted position, you see his eternal existence that's referred to in uh, verses 10 through 12. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. Obviously, he had to be here before time to initiate time. Uh, Anyway. You see that down through these, these verses here, all right, his eternal existence. And here, this, uh, these verses uh, 10 through 12, they quote Psalm 102, beginning in verse 25, 27. Then they go back to verses 13 and 16 in Psalm 2, and then they end with verses 1 and 12. So it's kind of like going backwards in that psalm uh, as far as what it's quoting. It also refers to Psalm 110, uh, verse 1 here at the end in, uh, in verses 13 and 14 in that he's the sovereign ruler, all right? To which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand. In Psalm um, 110 it says, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool, all right? But are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Remember, in the scheme of comparison, Uh, Thus far in the book of Hebrews, this is the angels are being compared to Christ, and Christ is shown to be far superior, all right? He didn't say that to any of the angels, as the verses say. It's to the Son, all right, that He said that. He's the sovereign ruler. He's the one that has the throne, and He's the one that's sitting at the right hand of of the throne of the majesty on high, as verse uh, 3 mentions here. Um, but then verse 14, I just want to give you an example of something here. This is one of the verses that people would look at in the Bible as uh, uh, referring to teaching about guardian angels. And I'm not going to get into that right now, but I'm just trying to give you an example here, right? There's, there's actually a couple other statements in the Bible. Um, but, but because notice what it says in verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? It's talking about angels, right? Are they not all ministering spirits? sent forth to minister, to serve, for them who shall be heirs of salvation. This is talking about angels, part of their job, all right? They serve God, they minister for God, but they also do things on behalf of God for man. And in this particular verse, it seems to indicate, all right, that God has ordained that angels have some kind of role in people who either are saved or will be saved. You can take this one of two ways, I think, that shall be heirs of salvation. So you're referring to people who are not saved yet, but they will be saved, all right? Keep in mind, God knows who will be saved. That doesn't mean God has predestined certain people to be saved and others not, but God knows who will be saved and God has predestined certain things about those people, all right? Um, But He knows who will be saved and do angels have a part in, if you want to say, protecting them, watching over them, uh, seeing that they get to certain places in life? Yeah, that, that's possible, okay? Uh, at the same time, the Bible does teach that the Holy Spirit has a role in that, okay? And, and, and I'm going to get to that in just a second. But uh, it could be that is the emphasis of saying that, they, that angels minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation, or it could be talking about people who are already saved. Okay, that angels have a role in working in their lives, okay, on behalf of God. That that's either one's probably arguably possible there. Uh, but here's the point. That that the idea of, of guardian angels or whatever role angels have in your or my lives, that's not the point of this passage. Okay, it's just simply a statement of comparison that angels are simply ministers for God. They're not God. Only God the Son is God, with God the Father, God the Spirit, but the comparison is God the Son and angels, all right? That's, that's what, I'm show, what I'm saying is the point of the passage is demonstrating the deity of Christ versus the servanthood of angels, all right? The point of the passage is not really talking about, you know, guardian angels or whatever, all right? Now, can this be a passage that's used if you're... If you're wanting to find out what the Bible says about angels and their role in various things, yes. But the point of the passage is not that. And by the way, that's how a lot of bad doctrine comes about. People use statements in the Bible, and by the way, there's a number of them in the book of Hebrews, okay? Because, and and we'll get to some of those, but um, because there's this statement in the Bible, okay? And, 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 And they focus on that statement And it might be a statement that's kind of, you know, it's not clear. It's obscure. It could be taken several different ways or something of that sort, right? And yet they focus on that instead of the clear statements, the clear passages and so on of Scripture. And one of the things that you'll see later on in the book of Hebrews is there are some passages in the book of Hebrews that people really, really focus on and say they're teaching that a believer can lose his or her salvation which is not true, by the way, okay? But they focus on these obscure passages, and they do that to the neglect of extremely clear passages in the Bible that teach otherwise, all right? And, and one, of the, one of the cardinal rules of interpretation, if you want to say, of the Bible is an if, all right, doesn't do away with a verily, verily. I mean, the clear statements are clear statements. And they, you know, that that obviously is what needs to be taken clearly. The other ones should be interpreted in light of the clear statements, not vice versa. But that's how a lot of people do, and they get messed up, all right? And so anyway, you see this the idea in chapter one of the, the superior person of Christ because of his deity. You get into chapter two, and it focuses on his humanity. We've, I've already shown that as far as in the big outline there. But the first four verses of chapter uh, 2 are the first. Remember we had mentioned, it was on the outline that I had handed out to you, and then it was on one of the slides at some point, uh, that in the book of Hebrews there are five warning passages. (coughs) There are five passages that contain, in the the point of the passage, it's like a stop in the argument. (coughs) Excuse me. It's like, it's like, you know, the, the argument of Hebrews is, is, is progressing along under that, the person, priesthood, and principle of Christ, but yet it's like a stop in that, and it's, it's there to hammer something to the audience in that, you know what, this is serious, you need to listen up. That's the idea of these five warning passages. This is the first of those, it's the shortest of those as well, and uh, it's not like it has nothing to do with what's been said, you'll see that it does. But the point of these verses is not advancing the the flow of the argument. It's just like stopping and pounding, you know, like a preacher just stopping and making a point, pounding his fist on the pulpit, saying this, this, you know, this is that. Okay. So look at the first four verses. In fact, of chapter two here, pardon me. And you'll see this. All right. Therefore, so because of what's already been said, all right. This is drawing a conclusion, but you'll see it's issuing a warning. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, now keep in mind what has just taken place in Hebrews 1. There's a comparison of Christ with angels, right? Right? Alright, so, for if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard Him. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with divers miracles and with and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. And it's a question mark, all right? Because the question began earlier, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's the question, all right? So it's a passage that's like stopping and saying, you know what, this is serious. You need to listen up and pay attention to this. All right, and the warning is: we better not disregard God's word. And the comparison, all right. If and that—that's why. Okay, so so if you want to say by way of outline of the warning, and I got it somewhere here and somewhere on a slide. All right, this is just a statement about it. If the old, if Old Testament Israel was punished for disobeying the words spoken by angels. How much greater would be the punishment for disobeying God's word spoken by his own son? Think about that. The comparison of angels and Christ. If Christ is far greater, is there not a more serious thing to consider the word of Christ versus the word of angels? All right. Now, and, and there's some references there. We're not going to worry about those at this point. I think they, I think they were probably included in the in the. Printed out outline that I had given you, and I guess I didn't have the. All right, I thought I put these on there, but I guess I didn't. But in verse one, you see basically an exhortation here, which is the the the, the warning issued. All right, and then in verses two, uh, well, in verse two you have the Old Testament analogy. All right, so going back, well, in the much of the Old Testament could be said okay to be that God communicated through angels now by the way angels in the Bible there are there are spiritual angelic beings but sometimes the word angel in the Bible refers to a human being all right because the basic meaning of the word angel is messenger all right John the Baptist is uh, well it's not translated angel in in English but the Greek word oftentimes used of John the Baptist is that he was it, it's usually translated messenger but It's angelos, the same word as angel, all right? But the point being is sometimes angel refers to a human being. Not always. The context, again, is what's going to tell that. Um, But uh, and here, so you could argue that the Old Testament in many ways was communicated to man via angels. God used angels to communicate things, all right? And the argument here, though, with this warning again is if, if God took, you know, if he put importance on that and there was punishment meted out for disobeying that, how much sorer, that's the word used here in Hebrews 2, right? How much, let me find it here. I can't find it. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, but it's a more severe... Punishment for disobeying the word, the revelation of God through His Son. If His Son is that much higher than the angels, it makes it, it's it's a warning of argue, You know, makes sense in the argument. You you need to pay attention to Christ. That's the whole point of this argument. It's a warning. Don't disobey, disregard the word of Christ. It's serious. All right, um, now. Uh, so let me, let me press on here in chapter 2, and again, we could, we could stop and, and dwell on any of these a whole lot more, um, but trying to, again, trying to give you the message of the book of Hebrews, all right? But, so in chapter 2, the primary emphasis in chapter 2 is the argument that Christ's person is superior because of his humanity, now it's already, we've already seen the argument in chapter one, he's superior in his person because of his deity, and that makes sense. But now because of his humanity. Now some might think, okay, well how does that make him superior? Well, look at what Hebrews chapter two says, right? And there's actually two, two main points that are communicated in chapter two about the humanity of Christ, or, or why Christ is superior in and through his humanity. And, and it's basically because of what he did in his humanity, okay, in and with his humanity. But first of all, think about this. I want you, you could ask this question and, and these two arguments answer this. Why was it necessary for God the Son to become man, to take on human flesh? Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about, it. we have to understand that what the bible presents about god the son is he became a man not he didn't just it wasn't like god just put on different clothes and put on like a human body I, I, this is this is hard to understand okay for any of us it's deep but the bible presents christ as being having taken on humanity he had a human body but he had a human soul A human spirit. I mean, I can't understand that specifically, but he was fully man. The only difference, if you want to say, that between him and us in humanity was he didn't have a sin nature as we have passed on through our fathers. He didn't have that because his father is who? God, all right? So God used Mary, obviously, as a vehicle for Christ to be born into humanity, again, that's deep. I mean, if you start trying to figure that out, and I mean, that's, that's deep, okay, that really is. And I don't know that anybody can fully understand it, but again, if we could fully understand everything about God, he wouldn't be all that great, would he? I mean, there are things about God we, have, we don't have the ability to understand. All right, I mean, it's just the way it is. He's God, All right? But why was it necessary for God the Son, who's God, been, has always been God? Why was it necessary for Him to become a man, to take on humanity, to become a man, to become a human? Well, only in humanity or with a human nature could Christ do these two things. All right, and the first one is this might be something that most people don't think of, but this is. Number one, it's important, and it's also something that's emphasized greatly here in chapter 2 of Hebrews, all right? And that is, if I can get to, oh, he could, re, uh, at, only as a man could Christ recover man's dominion over creation. you remember back in Genesis? Can somebody turn to Genesis chapter 1? Read verses 26, all right, Andy, if you've got that. Verses 26 through 27. You're familiar with these verses, you've heard them, all right? But just to give it's us a refresh here. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. All right, just to make this as quick as I can in that, all right, that verse, I mean, that's that's in Fifth Day of Creation, uh, Genesis 1, very beginning of things, right? God created man, and God created man different than everything else that he created. And in, in, there, there's a number of ways that that could be said. One is, man was said to be created in the image of God and after his likeness. Two different statements there, but they both kind of have the same idea, but two things. all right. So God made man Different than everything else, different than the angels, by the way. And you'll see a reference here in Hebrews 2 that as man is lower than the angels, but yet at the same time, man is above the angels in other ways, all right? I mean, it seems kind of like a paradox, but it's true. Both are true, all right? Now, so man was created differently, and along with that, God gave man a special responsibility, God said man was to have dominion over everything else in this physical creation, in this physical universe, all right? He did not say he was having dominion over the angels. The angels were, if you want to say, God's servants, all right? But God said man was given dominion. You clearly see that in those verses, all right? Now, again, I'm just trying to give you this real quick here. And I don't know that we'll get through all this right now with just a couple minutes we have left. But, but, all right, basically the idea is this, all right? And, and, and some, some think, and I, I probably tend to think along these lines without giving all the details here, but some think that, okay, that, that's what made Lucifer jealous, all right? Because he had this exalted position as this anointed cherub in heaven and all of this. But God gave man Dominion over his creation here? All right? You know, it might be. I, I don't know for sure. But obviously Lucifer had pride problems, right? I mean, Isaiah 14 there, right? But um but God gave man dominion. But when Adam sinned, he forfeited that dominion. He lost his right of dominion because he was not faithful to God. That's the point. Alright? And then the Bible makes reference. Jesus himself calls Satan the prince of this world. Uh, the Bible makes reference that, you know, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's the ruler of this, of the darkness of this world. He is, he, Satan now has some dominion over this world. It's a temporary and a limited dominion, but he has dominion over this world. Alright? But here's the point that we'll see, and and we don't even have time to read read the verses. We'll, we'll try to finish that up next week. But you can see here in Hebrews 2 that one of the points that's brought up and why Jesus became a man was so that he could regain man's rightful dominion over this world. Christ is going to return to this earth and he's going to be the rightful ruler here on this earth. Right. But. He had to become a man in order for that to be the case because then as he was a man and was fully obedient to everything that God said and fully obedient to the will and the plan of God, he carried out the faithfulness that Adam forfeited when Adam disobeyed, all right? And so that's something that we don't often think about when we think about Jesus becoming a man, but that was part of it, all right? Which now, then, he has the right of that dominion that God gave man. He earned that. And, and you'll see in Hebrews 2, for instance, you'll see a number of words like he, he learned this, he won this, he earned this. I mean, these kind of ideas. And that's what it's talking about. As a man, he learned obedience. As a man, because, and, and the idea is an experiential learning, all right? He, he, he obeyed, he carried it out into fruition and these things are true of him now because he demonstrated that he was faithful that's the idea all right and then let me just put this up and we'll close with this the other reason is is more obvious to us that's emphasized as to why he became a man all right not just (laughs) so that he could recover man's dominion over creation but without becoming a man he could not reconcile man's relationship to god that's the big one that we often, most often think of, and that's also talked about here in Hebrews chapter 2. But those are the two main reasons given in Hebrews chapter 2 as to why Jesus became a man, why God the Son became a man. There was no way he could do that without becoming a man. It was necessary, right? And part of this, of course, is dying as the sacrifice, right, for sin, God can't die. God had to become a man, take on humanity so that the man Jesus could die. I mean, again, that's hard. I I can't, I can't explain all the ins and outs and details of that, but that's what the Bible presents. All right. It was necessary for him. And we'll get more into that uh, next week then, but those two things. And so this week, I encourage you read Hebrews chapter two with that those arguments in mind, and I, I think that you'll see them there pretty easily, all right? And then we'll talk about some of the more details of that, and then transition into the next part as well, uh, Lord willing, next week. So let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your Word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus. I mean, there's so much about Him that we probably just can't even understand, and uh, Lord, but it's it's uh, it's wonderful that you you tell us these things, and you share these secrets, if you want to say, with us uh, in your words so that we can have a better appreciation, a better love, and uh, hopefully a better loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you'd help us to be closer to you uh, today, help us to love you as we ought and obey you as we ought. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray, amen.